Welcome to the Hanu Health Podcast, where our mission is to help you to breathe better and stress less. On this show, we discuss a variety of topics and provide practical suggestions for improving health and well-being. However, none of the education, tips, and tricks provided should be taken as medical advice. Your medical doctor is your best bet if you have medical questions. Also, on this podcast, we interview numerous guests from diverse backgrounds, interests, and may carry some unique ideas. Hanu Health as a company does not endorse all statements provided by guests or condone all suggestions or protocols discussed. We just like hearing about cool people doing rad and new things. So sit back, relax, breathe, and enjoy the show. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back. Hanu Health Podcast. So glad to have you here. I love doing this podcast, especially this type of podcast, because this is the Q&A. And in the Q&A for HRV, I get to just sit here and jam on about whatever I want. Well, actually, I answer your questions. The listeners submitted questions to the Hanu Health Podcast. There's many ways that you can do this. So I know I kind of sound like a broken record, but if it's your first time with us, hey, welcome. If you're watching this on YouTube, welcome. I don't know when this is going to be posted to YouTube, but at some point it will be. Most of you are probably listening to this in the podcast. But again, you're on YouTube. What's up, guys? Sorry for all the mess. I mean, we just moved into this brand new office in downtown Greenville, South Carolina, and it's a little messy back here. I promise we're going to get the studio all set up. It's going to look beautiful. Just, just wait. Put you on pause. Just like for the rest of the year. Like the rest of this year, which will be 2022 maybe when you're listening to this. Probably when you're listening to this. Well, the rest of the year, we have so many things coming down the pike. I mean, like we've launched our company last year, 2021, and this year is when like the big stuff happens. And like when I say big stuff, like I mean like actually like really big stuff. Like just hold on. And again, like if you're watching this like at the end of 2022, you're going to be like, oh, all that big stuff. Yeah, I'm going to leave you with beta breath. Anyway. Again, welcome. This is the HRV Q&A. If you want to submit your question to me because you're like, hey, I want Dr. J to answer my question that I have on heart rate variability or stress resiliency or breath work or whatever it may be, it's pretty easy. So all you have to do is you go on to Instagram, you go on to the YouTube channel, you go on anywhere you can find us, podcast at hanuhealth.com. Again, podcast at hanuhealth.com and you submit your question there. And then again, if we answer your question here, live on the podcast or on YouTube and you want some free Hanu gear. So again, we're talking about some stress balls with Hanu logo on it, an aluminum bottle with the Hanu logo on it, die cut Hanu stickers. And then our Q&A co-host, Patrick McEwen, or McEwen, he has his book Atomic Focus all on mental clarity, kind of cognitive performance, anxiety, stress, mental health performance. All of that again is going to be yours signed signed copy from patrick if you sign up not sign up if you <laughs> submit your question uh last thing we also give you three months yeah it's three months worth of breath strips Jeez, sleep strips i'm gonna have to like edit all this out three months <laughs> worth of worth of mouth tape so the mouth tape that you get actually comes from patrick's company the mouth tape is called myotape it is the most phenomenal tape. I use it every single night, like every single night. It's kind of like my little blanket around my lips. It helps me go night, night. Love this stuff. So again, the questions that you submit here 
can be anything and everything. Like it can be anything and everything regarding HRV. I mean, if it's anything and everything, and I don't think it's fitting, then I'm not going to answer it. But if it's related to HRV, stress resiliency, breath work, psychology, psychophysiology, performance, submit it to us. Maybe you'll get it on here. If we read your question live, and then we'll send you a Hanu gear package. Just email us podcast at hanuhealth.com with your name, your address, and we'll get you that nice, beautiful Hanu gear box straight to your door. Okay. So if you never visited us here on YouTube, here on the podcast, Hanu Health, we are a health technology company that is at the intersection of breathing, stress resiliency, and heart rate variability. And again, it's going to make a lot more sense um, kind of maybe midway through this year, later on in this year that you're like, oh, that's what you're building. But it's going to be an incredible platform for all things stress resiliency and anxiety. And right now, you know, we are in the midst of two pandemics, right? Hopefully, we're on the back end of the the COVID nineteen pandemic. I feel like I say that every you know six months, and then they're like, "Hey, here's a new variant. Watch out!" Not to make light of the variants, um, but it just feels like it's kind of like a never ending cycle. But I, I think that's kind of one of the primary reasons that it's led to our secondary pandemic. And whenever I refer to our secondary pandemic, I'm talking about the pandemic of stress, a stress pandemic that has coincided with COVID-19. It was already here. Like The stress pandemic has been here for a long time. COVID-19 basically exacerbated everything. It made it worse. And so for us at Hanu, we're like, this is kind of um, a time to strike while the iron's hot, not to take advantage of people, but to really help people through a very, very difficult time. We're talking about people who have had struggles related to finances because of COVID-19, struggles regarding their overall health, or maybe they're saying, I want to engage in better health because I see that people who have better health outcomes um, have better COVID relief outcomes or basically can deal with COVID better. Their immune system is more uh, uh, in line with the ability to help them during this time. So we said this is the great opportunity to fill a void or to fill a gap that's really much needed in the health tech space. So that's where we step in and we're here to help in so many different ways. It's not going to be like we have a singular product per se, but again, I'll leave you with bated breath on that one. But I'm just glad that you made it here. Let's jump in to some HRV Q&A. Now, the one thing that I wanted to preface this with is that I have three questions that I'm going to answer today on this podcast. And I'm also going to dive into some research, um, the brand new research that's out there in the HRV field. One thing that we know in HRV, stress resiliency, psychophysiology, is that it's a very dense scientific field. The topic areas uh, can be very difficult to understand for the layperson, and even the experienced researchers and scientists have a difficulty sifting through all the research. So my goal here is to kind of provide you with the newest up-to-date research on heart rate variability and stress resiliency so that you can make it practical and also keep it palatable. Because if you were to go through and read some of these research studies, you'd be like, what in the world am I reading? So I'm here to kind of break some of this stuff down for you. And again, at the end, and you know, I'm, I always say this, is that I like to give you the low-hanging fruit. I want you to have something that you can take in your back pocket and use it on a daily basis. Make it a part of your behavioral habits. Make it part of your routine. So let's jump into it. I think a lot of people always, especially again, if it's your first time jumping into this, you're going to want to know, like, what is, you keep saying HRE, you keep saying heart rate variability, you talk about stress resiliency, so I'm assuming it's like tied into that. And it is. I always tell people that in the end, HRV, heart rate variability, 
is simply a data point or a proxy to nervous system functioning. When I talk about nervous system, that can be a little bit confusing because the nervous system is quite large. It's quite grand. I'm actually more specifically talking to our ANS or our autonomic nervous system, which consists of multiple branches. But the two branches that we focus on mostly are the parasympathetic and sympathetic branch. These are not kind of dueling branches of the nervous system. They can actually work very much in conjunction with one another. However, we kind of can simplify them into kind of two different responses. The sympathetic response or the sympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system is really responsible for that fight or flight response or that motivated response, that energy using response. A lot of people will associate it with the stress response, which wouldn't necessarily be incorrect, but may not provide a full picture or story as to what the sympathetic nervous system is. But for all intents and purposes, if we wanna identify it as our fight or flight response, or as our stress response, or as our energy producing response, I'm okay with that. The parasympathetic response or the parasympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system is really most closely associated with our relaxation response, our rest and digest response, and is really a means of energy conservation. And I like to kind of conceptualize it as a means of energy conservation. Now, again, I like to conceptualize or kind of paint the picture of kind of like the gas pedal and the brake, whereas the sympathetic nervous system runs kind of like the gas pedal and the parasympathetic nervous system runs like the brake. And instead of us using like one foot driving like we would normally do, we kind of drive like Formula uh, Formula One race car drivers. I'm not a huge Formula One race car driver guy. Might need to uh, contact Peter Atia on this one. Uh, however, what I know is, is that they, uh, especially around curves, will drive with two feet. It's not one-footed driving. They don't pull the, uh, the foot off the gas pedal. They actually will apply the brake and the gas at the same time. Uh, and that's how our nervous system works. It's not kind of like a teeter-totter, like we press the gas pedal, lift the foot off the gas pedal to press the brake and, and back and forth and back and forth. It just doesn't work like that. And I'll explain a little bit more of the nuances there. But I wanted to set the stage, kind of the broader umbrella of the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system, or again, the two branches of the autonomic nervous system. There's also the enteric nervous system, but which is a part of the peripheral nervous system, which is the greater umbrella of the autonomic nervous system. <laughs> a lot of nervous systems here, right? But I don't want to kind of spiral you, spiral you down into that. So for right now, we'll just really talk about those two branches. And the reason, again, I bring this up is because this is where heart rate variability comes into play. Heart rate variability is a proxy or gives us information about what's going on in those two branches. How are they modulating? Are they working in conjunction with one another? Are they kind of working, kind of opposing one another? Because that can happen. It's not that they can't work against each other. They, they very well can. It's just that, again, it's not that simple. Nothing in physiology, especially in psychophysiology, is that simple. So again, HRV provides us a proxy. So what is heart rate variability? So heart rate variability, again, is the variability that occurs from beat to beat in time or in frequency. And you might be like, well, what does that mean in frequency? I can understand time, the time between each heartbeat or, or adjacent heartbeat, but I don't know about frequency. Well, we're going to answer that question here in just a little bit because we have that question that is provided by a listener. But uh, needless to say, or maybe I do need to say it, is that HRV really is going to tell us like what is going on in, in the nervous system? Like, are you experiencing kind of a heightened load of stress right now? 
And that could be stress psychologically, relationally, financially, physically, like an exercise or maybe due to health problems. Um, are you experiencing that stress load or are you experiencing the ability to kind of modulate your vagus nerve, your 10th cranial nerve to give you more of that rest and digest relaxation response? So that's really what we're talking about. I've done so many podcasts on this. Obviously, you can go onto our website, hanuhealth.com see a lot of writings that we're going to be coming out with over the course of the next six months to a year. And then listen to just type in my name, Dr. J. Wiles, HRV. And if you want to hear kind of like the ins and outs of heart rate variability, you'll be able to find that all over the interwebs. Probably my most seminal podcast I've done is with Ben Greenfield. It was like a two and a half hour or so podcast that was like deep dive HRV. Did another one with Ben Pakolsky on the Muscle Intelligence podcast, which is a pretty deep dive as well. But scour the interwebs. Maybe I'll link to this in the show notes. And you can, again, you can find the show notes of this at hanuhealth.com slash podcast. All of our podcasts are there. And then of course, YouTube channel. All right, let's talk about that research study. So the research study that I'm actually going to talk about uh, came out this past year in Journal of Medicine. So past year would be 2021. And it looked at the effects of slow breathing rates on HRV, heart rate variability, and arterial baroreflex sensitivity and essential hypertension. So if you're wondering what are all these words, well, slow breathing. So we're going to talk about a slow respiratory rate. We're going to talk about heart rate variability, which you probably already somewhat familiar with. And then arterial baroreflex sensitivity is probably something that you've either kind of heard in passing or most of you probably have never heard of that. And then, and I'll talk about that here in a second. And then essential hypertension. So what is essential hypertension. So essential hypertension is the most common form of hypertension. Hypertension is going to be high blood pressure. So when we experience um, kind of a uh, an influx of high levels of blood pressure against the arterial walls, that can actually cause a lot of damage um, to the epithelial walls uh, or the epithelial cells um, that surround our blood vessels. And then also too, it can cause significant difficulties uh, for the heart. The heart's having to work harder and to pump harder or is pumping harder resulting in blood pressure. Now, the baroreflex is actually a feedback loop that is there to help maintain homeostasis of blood pressure. When we have a baroreflex that is really sensitive, that means it responds almost either at control or to other variables or factors in the body to tell blood pressure to either regulate itself up or down. Because sometimes we need blood pressure to be regulated downward, and sometimes we need it to be regulated upward. And we actually know that one of the major influences of heart rate variability is indeed your baroreflex. So Again, how does the barrel reflex mechanism work? How does it help us to maintain appropriate blood pressure? Well, it's complex, but it's also not that complex. We're actually, I'm going to tell you uh, the, the less complex version of the barrel reflex mechanism, uh, but there's actually a lot more complexities that kind of run this. Again, it's a feedback loop system. Uh, and when I say a feedback loop system, is I mean, is that it comes full circle. It basically creates a 360. So we actually have um, in our carotid sinus and then in the aortic arch of the heart, we have these receptors, blood pressure receptors, called baroreceptors. And the baroreceptors are there to kind of monitor to see whether or not there are significant changes in an upward direction of blood pressure or a decrease in blood pressure. So they're really there to kind of like monitor and kind of look out to see whether or not we need to regulate blood pressure upwards 
or downwards. So again, in the aortic arch of the heart, and then also in the carotid sinus. So these again, blood pressure mechanisms are always kind of scanning the environment to determine which way uh, kind of are, are we going when they detect kind of an increase in heart rate. So heart rate is increasing. And then therefore too the subsequent later on blood pressure increases, these baroreceptors say, okay, I sense now that there is indeed an increase in blood pressure, an increase in heart rate that are coinciding with one another. And then what it does is it actually sends a signal via the vagus and glossopharyngeal nerve. And then also through the use of a neuro uh, neurochemical neurotransmitter and neuromodulator called acetylcholine, it sends a direct signal um, uh, back up into the brain, into the medulla that actually indicates to the body blood pressure is going up and now we need to down regulate it. And so this feedback system will actually send back down through the, through the uh, NTS of the brain, back down to the aortic arch and baroreceptors of the heart to then say, okay, we need to calm down. So the vagus nerve will actually help to release or reduce blood pressure via these baroreceptors. The exact opposite can happen as well. Um, acetylcholine is really interesting because it can actually work um, as a uh, what we call uh, like almost like an upper uh, as as far as neurotransmitters goes. Uh, so basically it can cause um, almost like a stimulant type of effect, which can increase heart rate, increase blood pressure, but it also can result um, in a reduction. Uh, so it can actually decrease heart rate, can decrease uh, blood pressure as well. So it works as a really cool neurotransmitter and it's a part of this feedback loop system. So when someone has a sensitive barrel reflex, that means that it actually is very sensitive to the messaging um, that need be, that need be to help create homeostatic blood pressure. And that can be good um, and it can be, it is good because it can help again to regulate blood pressure. But when the barrel reflex mechanism is not very sensitive and blood pressure is high and there's no means to help down regulate it, then that's where we can have some problems and it can lead some, to some significant difficulties, especially when it comes to uh, essential hypertension. So essential hypertension, primary hypertension, uh, means that there's no other physiological cause or mechanism that we can identify that is, the, that is resulting then in hypertension or resulting in high blood pressure. And we know that people with really high blood pressure or even if they're approaching high blood pressure, can have a, a baroreflex mechanism that is not very sensitive. In other words, it doesn't really listen. So how do we actually engage it? Can we make it listen to us? Well, we know from research and science that there's a lot of different mechanisms to, to help out with that. We know exercise is really a, a key component to helping with approximate and uh, uh, to um, alleviate the difficulties of high blood pressure that it can cause. And one of the things that we know too is that it's a silent killer. Like most people don't feel high blood pressure. Like if it's really, really high, maybe you'll feel it. Um, if it's really, really low, maybe you'll feel it. And when people get into that 140 over 90, which is actually changed to 130 over 80, when they get into that range, most people are not going to be able to sense that or to feel that. Like our level of um, internal bodily awareness, awareness or uh, interoception typically isn't strong enough or maybe I would say sensitive enough to feel changes like that. So that's why we have to be very careful and monitor those things. That's why you get checked up on this when you go to your, see your physician um, each time that you go. So it's, it's one thing that to just kind of keep in mind, if you're not checking that, check it. Uh, it's very, it's a very, very important biomarker or biometric as important, if not more important than heart rate variability. And I'm an HRV guy.
So back to kind of this idea of like what regulates it, exercise is a big one, nutrition. Um, so eating a very low inflammatory diet, one that's low in like rancid oils, linoleic acids, a lot of polysaturated fats, one that's really low in overly processed sugars and carbohydrates, one that's really kind of uh, specifically there to be anti-inflammatory because we know that there's a strong association between high inflammation and damage to the epithelial walls of cells and damage to uh, the heart um, over time, especially due to high blood pressure. The other thing that we've that's been examined and that I'm going to talk about today is how we can utilize slow paced breathing, SPB. Can we utilize slow paced breathing to make changes in heart rate, to make changes in HRV? Does it affect blood pressure? Well, that's what the study uh, research. Check out the show notes again, hanuhealth.com slash podcast. And what they did is they looked at 60 different participants who had a diagnosed hypertension and then 60 participants that were healthy. And then they compared kind of what was going on between or what would happen in both groups when they engaged in slow paced breathing. And then when they engaged in quote unquote, regular paced breathing. Now we actually know that most individuals will breathe at a rate anywhere from about 14 to 16 breaths per minute. That is considered a normal pace of, of breathing where they set the the group that were breathing at the normal respiratory rate was actually at 16 breaths per minute, which I find to be a little bit high. Um, I would have probably, if I was again, the one establishing this research study gone more for that 14-ish breaths per minute, and they were paced. So they had a pacer, both for the slow pace breathing, which was six breaths per minute, and then they were paced at a rate of uh, 16 breaths per minute. Now, one thing that you will find, if you were to take out your phone and like download a pacer or download the Hanu app when we come out, boom, uh, and you were to set a pacer at 16 breaths per minute, even though during the day when you're not consciously aware of it and you're breathing at, let's say, 14 to 16 breaths per minute, doesn't really phase you. Like you don't really notice that you're breathing, quote unquote, faster than what you might think that you're breathing. However, if you pace yourself at 14 to 16 breaths per minute, you're going to feel it. Like most people feel like, my goodness, like there is a tug, there is a strain, there's a struggle here. And so I always take that into account because when I was doing a lot of biofeedback, with a lot of my clientele, a lot of my patients within the hospital setting, when I would pace them at 12 breaths per minute, which was technically slower than the average adult, they would always say, man, I feel like I'm hyperventilating. I feel like I'm breathing fast. And I'm like, ha ha, gotcha. That was 12 breaths per minute. That's technically lower than what most people breathe on an average rate. And it was always kind of funny to them and not funny, I'd say, but it was just kind of like alarming to them. Like, whoa, I didn't realize that. But I always say, well, the caveat there is that you're pacing your breath and being very consciously aware of kind of your breathing pattern. And so it feels a lot faster. So eh, I take that into account. So what's the psychological play there when someone's breathing at a pace of 16 breaths per minute? Well, for them, it may like increase heart rate, decrease HRV, simply do and, and, and modulate hypertension in, in a wrong direction, simply because it just feels very abnormal and weird. The same can be said for SPB, slow paced breathing, but maybe for the opposite effect um, in that, yes, you are not going to breathe at a rate of six breaths per minute normally. Like that's not going to happen. And anybody who tries to tell you that you can train yourself to kind of breathe at a rate of six breaths per minute all throughout the day, I would challenge that. I would say, where's your science that we could actually modulate breathing to that rate? Anyway, hey, DM me. If you've got some evidence that you could do it, DM me. So anyway, back to this idea. Again, 
what does it look like? Slow paced breathing versus 16 breaths per minute, or what we'll call again, normal breathing in a group of those with hypertension and you know, those that are considered a healthy control. Well, what we found is that when we engage in slow paced breathing, when the group groups engage in slow paced breathing, this is both the healthy controls. And this is also in those with essential hypertension. We saw a decrease in heart rate and we saw a significant decrease in blood pressure. One of the interesting things though, is that those with hypertension, so those who were diagnosed with high blood pressure actually saw the largest decreases in blood pressure. And this is incredible um, if you think about it, because a lot of people in the US right now are struggling with hypertension, which is one of the primary, if not the primary cause for exacerbated symptoms of cardiovascular disease and the potential for heart attack and stroke. So what we know is that if we can engage and again, slow paced breathing, which was identified as six breaths per minute, then we can significantly decrease blood pressure and decrease heart rate. The other th cool thing is that we see a significant increase in heart rate variability in both groups, but most specifically we see it in those with hypertension. Now the kind of the question is then begged, like why do we see the effect take place more significantly in the group with hypertension. Well, the way it's kind of explained in physiological research is that if you take somebody who's never worked out before, um, who is maybe in kind of like, let's say an unhealthier condition to someone who like exercises, engages in resistant training, you take them, uh, and we get them on a workout routine. They're going to see faster gains initially than the person who's quote unquote, like in the gym, like engaging in exercise, they've kind of already seen their gains. And so they're going to gain at a much slower pace. Whereas the individual who is just starting is going to see a really significant gain fast. Well, that's kind of like the proposal here from a physiological perspective is that the healthy individuals don't have as much to gain from because they're at a different starting place than those who have hypertension. So that's the idea. What else we, did we see? Well, in both groups and in the, uh, we, we see this increased LF activity. So LF is the low frequency band. I'm going to talk about frequency domains here in just a second, but low frequency uh, band is really associated with the barrel reflex mechanism. So the barrel reflex mechanism, again, this homeostatic blood pressure mechanism, we see this significant increase when we engage in slow paced breathing compared to normal breathing in the LF band. This is something that's very commonly known in heart rate variability biofeedback, uh, in that in that research realm and the reason being we see all this power increase in the low frequency band because we're engaging the barrel reflex through the vagus so that's the proposed like we don't have strong evidence and um, by strong evidence in the scientific world i'm talking about like we have kind of like this is the identified component or mechanism of action there could be plenty of mechanisms of action here however what we do know though is that there's significant evidence that the vagus nerve does modulate that baroreflex mechanism and increase the power that's found in that low frequency band we also know too that as breathing rate decreased there was an increase in HF power, which is high frequency domain. Another commonly held um, notion in the world of heart rate variability biofeedback research is that we typically will not examine or look at kind of the power changes in the high frequency band when engaging in low breathing. And that's because all the power so in, in low pace breathing or slow pace breathing. And the reason is because all that power is really shifted primarily into the low frequency band because of the barrel reflex mechanism. So we don't examine that. They indicated it, but I didn't hold a lot of weight to that.
So when compared to controls, <clears throat> what we know is that resting baroreflex sensitivity uh, uh, actually decreased in the hypertensive patients. Um, which is kind of interesting. Um, so baroreflex sensitivity, when we were uh, comparing them to the controls, it decreased, which isn't a huge factor because of what I'm about to say, is that we actually know though that after time of engaging in slow frequency or slow, um, uh, slow pace breathing, sorry, is that blood pressure was indeed better regulated amongst both groups, but especially within the hypertensive group. And after time, we see that again, slow paced breathing is really capable of shifting us into a sympatho, uh, or sympatho vagal balance that's more kind of dictated or towards kind of that vagal response. And over time, we increase the sensitivity of our baroreflex mechanism. Um, so it's kind of like initially they saw kind of a decrease there, but it might've been too, because the body was kind of like, what's going on here? Like I'm having a hard time adjusting almost like this was stressful but over time it becomes used to it and the thermostat indeed actually will change so that's that's pretty neat in the end what the authors concluded is that this is a pretty safe approach uh, to managing hypertension um, or at least can be an adjunctive now i'm not saying that this is the replacement for all other things like you don't need to exercise you don't need to eat right like you don't need to you know potentially even take medications like i don't want to demonize anything else or throw anything else out and say all we need to do is slow paced breathing heart rate variability biofeedback it's just not the case but what we're saying is that this is a great additive adjunctive and is shown by science to help in this study. So hopefully that was informative for you. Again, the name of the study, Effects of Slow Breathing Rate on HRV and Arterial Baroreflex Sensitivity in Essential Hypertension, Journal of Medicine 2021. This is again, like a mouthful, but hopefully that's helpful. All right, so now let's shift our focus over to the Q&A. Q&A, again, all listeners submitted, you guys, and gals submitted the questions over to us. If you hear your name, you hear your question, reach out to us. You can DM us on Instagram. You can send us an email podcast at hanuhealth.com. Uh, that's probably the best way to do it. Podcast at hanuhealth.com because you can put your name, you know, your information, your username, whatever, and then we'll send you out a gear package. We need your address too. All right. Question one. This one comes from Matt. Matt asks, I'm having a lot of difficulty with time of fitting in training for my nervous system. I know that I should be doing more and that there are a lot of things that can help me with my HRV, but is there something that you recommend for everyone every day? So basically, is there like one thing that everybody should be doing for HRV or more so for nervous system resiliency, for stress resiliency, for stress adaptation. I, I, I like this question. I hate this question. Sorry, Matt. I don't mean to say like, I hate your question. Like, I don't like to box us into saying I have like one approach that everybody should be doing, but I do have an answer for that. Like, I really have an answer like that. I think everybody should be doing a lot of different things that I'll talk about here in a second. But there is one thing that I think that everybody can do kind of regardless of their situation, uh, regardless of their means or resources. And you probably know what I'm going to say but it's the most research and evidence-based response that I have. So I'm gonna tell you here in just a second. But I like this question because again, I do think I have a response for everybody that can help them. Um, not because it's my opinion, but because it's again, backed in science. And if you were to jump onto PubMed, 
and you were to look at, okay, so what are all the research studies on HRVB, which is HRV biofeedback, slow paced breathing uh, for, you know, nervous system, stress resiliency, like you're going to find thousands among thousands among thousands of studies on this. And so what my answer right now um, is going to be kind of entailed with or entailed in is going to be that research. It's going to be like, this is kind of what we have found uh, is really kind of the lowest hanging fruit. There we go again, my catchphrase. So Matt, here we go. Okay. I wish I had a drum roll. Can I insert a drum roll somehow? Yeah. I wish I could do that. Okay. Drum roll uh, in your mind. It's slow paced breathing. It's conscientious breathing. That is the thing that is the low hanging fruit that everyone could do. So if I said, or had to say, there is one thing that I believe every single person should be doing every single day, it would be breathing. You need that to survive. Uh, you can't just hold your breath all day. I don't know. Some of these free divers might be able to do it. I mean, David Blaine, David Blaine can do it. But that that's, that's again, the low hanging fruit is slow paced breathing. And I'm not even talking about, you know, HRV biofeedback. I'm not even talking about like anything that requires any bit of technology. I'm talking about slow paced breathing. It could be you counting in your head, doing a four, six breath, pacing yourself at six breaths per minute. Or if you know your RF rate and your resonant frequency rate, you could do that. But there is nothing right now in the research that is as uh, compelling in regards to what can make nervous system change and stress resiliency change than slow paced breathing. Now, again, I think that you can put on some additives like HRV biofeedback. So receiving some feedback from your physiology, from an HRV standpoint, I think that can be extremely helpful. And I think a lot of people can gain a ton of great benefit from that and probably should do that. However, again, if you had to do anything every single day is that you want to send your nervous system a direct signal that it's safe, that it's secure, and that you can modulate it at will. And, and you do that through slow paced breathing, four, six breaths, five, five breaths, four, eight breaths, kind of whatever kind of fits your RF rate, whatever fits kind of your feel, like what you subjectively like. I love to kind of marry that idea of subjective, you know, feel and breathing with objective uh, data. Even though, again, I'm not talking about the need for data. I think that's important. Talk about here in just a second, but it's breathing. So that's my short answer. If you are not engaged in breath work on a daily basis, like this is my call to action. And a lot of people might say, okay, well, how long? Like what should I be doing in regards to my time commitment? And I would say that there's no great short answer for this, but it's like what you can do. Patrick and I talk about this on the Q&A episode all the time about the best practice is the practice that you do. And so I really think that you're doing yourself a huge service, your body, your mind, your soul, really, by just engaging in what you can. If that means a minute a day, start there. If it means five seconds a day, start there. I mean, five seconds is going to get you like a five second inhale. So eh, you might want to do 10 seconds at least, but I would say start there. And the reason I want you to start there is because uh, this is kind of like the Dan Harris method. He says, like, I sit down to meditate with the idea that I'm going to meditate for 30 seconds every day. And then when I get to 30 seconds, if I want to go longer, I go longer. If I'm not feeling it, then I pause and maybe I'll come back again. I'm cool with that because, again, at least like you tried, you put forth the effort to 
try, yeah, it's the same, same, same thing, but you put forth the effort to like really engage that part of you. And I think that's extremely important. So set aside that time. If you can do five minutes, that's great. If you can do 10, 15 minutes, man, rock star, that's awesome. But really, it's just engaging in sending that direct message via your vagus nerve from your nervous system, your autonomic nervous system to your central nervous system that you are safe, that you are secure. Now, the gold standard from an HRV biofeedback perspective, Dr. Paul Lair has written about this, Dr. Richard Gewurz has written about this, would be twice a day, 25 minutes. And again, that's more HRV biofeedback, but again, slow paced breathing, you could do that as well. So something to consider uh, if you are like, hey, I wanna go hardcore about this. The gold standard uh, in, from a research and scientific perspective from Paul Lair's work, from Richard Goodvert's work is 50 minutes a day, split up into two 25 minute sessions. It can be tough to fit that in, but if you can do it, great. All right, so breathing, that's my number one answer. I mean, there are plenty of other options. I mean, we've talked about on this podcast how kind of exercise, things like zone two training, resistance training, uh, doing high intensity interval training or high intensity repeat training, hit or hurt training. I talked about a lot of this with, with Ben Greenfield can be super effective in increasing cardiorespiratory fitness, which is one of the strongest indicators of an increased HRV and more so again, utilize it as a proxy of stress resiliency and stress adaptation. So exercise is a big one. I've mentioned you. Know, uh, making changes to the nutrition, like from a high, uh, from like a standard American diet to a anti-inflammatory di diet, it's really important. Also, one of the things that we know is that eating like a really high calorically dense diet, especially like when we eat a really heavy meals or we snack throughout the day can be very detrimental to heart rate variability and can reduce cardiorespiratory fitness. So one of the things that I would really, really, uh, I guess, just kind of strongly encourage you to do is to avoid heavy meals, to avoid like these really high calorically dense meals. I see this happen with a lot of people who fast. Now, those of you who know me and follow me know that I fast pretty much every single day um, until about lunchtime when I break my fast. If I break my fast with a super high calorically dense meal, just like a ton of food, then the rest of the afternoon can feel a little bit sluggish for me and I will watch my HRV just, it'll tank down. So I would really encourage you to avoid that and avoid like snacking throughout the day. Give yourself kind of like these mini fasts throughout the day. It's probably more evolutionarily sound to not be snacking all day, especially on like, you know, donuts, ding dongs, pastries, whatever. Uh, the next thing that's really important. And again, this is a short list, like a really short list. I think that I could add probably 20 other things to here, but the other one would be uh, thing that we could do every day would be gratitude and relationships and social life. Uh, we'll have to link to this one in the show notes, but Dr. Andrew Huberman, did a phenomenal podcast on gratitude and the neuroscience and research behind gratitude. One of the things that he mentions is that, you know, the engagement of writing down things that we're grateful for and, you know, having it, that gratitude journal is really important. It can be really helpful, but it's not nearly as important as what it is to actually physically give gratitude, like in person or over the phone or, uh, you know, through our words. That can be really important and that's really helpful too. The most important thing would be to receive from others, receive gratitude from others. Now, I'm not saying that you should go out there and try to poach and grab <laughs> gratitude from other people. It can be a little bit awkward at times, and I'm not sure that the science would say that that would be as effective. But one of the things that I have found, and I don't know 
why necessarily this is. Um, it's kind of just the universe coming in full circle. The more I give gratitude, I tend to receive gratitude. And it's great for me. I love offering gratitude to other people, but I just feel like I receive gratitude more often when I do that. Maybe it's because I notice when other people are providing me uh, with their level of gratitude. And we know that that can enhance nervous system resiliency, reduce our stress response, and can manifest in a higher level of HRV. So really honing in on how do we improve relationships? How do we increase our social well-being? How do we also uh, improve kind of our ability to provide and then also receive gratitude? Because a lot of times we don't notice that we're receiving gratitude from others because our heart, our mind, our soul is in a place that's not being very receptive. And I'm not trying to get too much psychologist on you as I tend to do sometimes, but I do think that if we are not open and receptive to receiving that level of gratitude, that sometimes we'll just miss it. We'll just miss it. People will offer it to us in one way or another, and we'll just let it pass on by. And then again, woe is me. So that's that's one thing that I check into. So Matt, great question. Sorry for kind of going a little bit long-winded on, on that one. But I think that if you are engaging in breath work each and every day, uh, in whatever capacity, slow-paced breathing, I think it's really effective. Uh, if you want to optimize and maximize that response, I think having that built in as a habit, yes, key. But also too, how can you increase and leverage technology? I found that a lot of people love the idea of sitting down and breathing. It's very helpful subjectively. But then when they get to see objective data, it reinforces the behavior because it tends to be a little bit more fun. It's a little bit more gamified, actually. So we know from research, and we're going to talk about this study in, in, a, in a new podcast, is that like there are some advantages uh, when we look at HRV biofeedback compared to slow-paced breathing, but they're not substantial. Like slow-paced breathing in and of itself is the primary means or catalyst of change. HRV biofeedback can be really great for one thing called emotional balance. I'll talk about this in a later podcast, but also too, one of the things that we know about leveraging technology and providing objective data is that people tend to latch on to that as it's no longer just subjective change, but it's now objective change. Like I see it in my physiology and therefore I'm more likely to do it. So it's really good for helping to reinforce behavior change, which I think again is key because doing it every once in a while is helpful. It's, impo it's important. Doing it consistently is absolutely key in this game, just as is anything right in health. I mean, it, how are we supposed to be that adaptive? Our body's supposed to be that adaptive if we're only like eating well once every week or once every other week, or we're exercising once a week or once every other week. Not nearly as much as if we have a consistent behavioral pattern. So that's really important. All right, all right, Matt, reach out to us. We want to get you a Hanu gear pack. Next one. I love this question because I had to think about it a while and I love questions that I have to think about. But this next one comes from Sally. So Sally, thanks again. I believe that you wrote us a message on Instagram. So again, reach out to us when you hear this, Sally. So it's what Sally asks, for markers of health, we compare ourselves to others. So she listed things like lipids, BMI or body mass index, blood pressure. Why not HRV? So again, why do we compare ourselves on other biomarkers, but HRV kind of is one that we don't? So 
again, great question. Question I get asked a lot. And uh, one that also people are very, very confused by. The reason people are very confused by is because we do compare ourselves on so many other biometrics, on other biomarkers, but HRV tends to be kind of like it's on its own island. And so it can be a little bit confusing. And there's a big myth too. I mean, people, again, I've, I've said this probably a thousand times, but people will get on to social media and they'll see, you know, other people posting their aura ring score, their whoop score. And it will show their HRV and other people are like, I don't get it. Like this person's got a 140 HRV and I'm sitting over here in my, you know, 25. Like, am I going to die? And I always make that joke. But a lot of people actually do ask that because they think that that 25 millisecond RMSSD HRV value is indicative of them like having cardiovascular disease. And again, I'm, I'm trying not to laugh, but I will laugh so that you understand that, you know, that's not a good question to ask in terms of like, that's not... It, it doesn't make sense to ask that. Now, we don't have any evidence to say that just because you have a quote unquote, you know, low HRV because you're comparing it to others um, uh, or even the normative comparison doesn't mean like that you're then going to like have cardiovascular disease, have a heart attack or stroke and die. Like it's just that's not the way this stuff works. So let's just ask them the question of like, what does literature say? Like, what does the science have to say about comparing HRV? Well, first, there actually are situations where HRV needs to be compared normatively. And what I mean by that is that when HRV needs to be compared to the normative population, so that's kind of like the greater, broader population, normative population or a normative comparison in scientific research and literature is really saying we're kind of comparing it to the broad population. What is the norm of the population? So, Here's one thing that does need to be compared, and this would be a cardiac outcome perspective. Now, I think on my last podcast or whatever, I talk about this so often, I get confused about which podcast I've said it and have not said it. But one of the things that I will say is that on these po on a previous podcast, I talked about how we can and should, if need be, compare HRV to, a, to the norm or to the po normative population when we're assessing cardiac outcomes. Now, there's some caveats that I have to throw there. Number one, it should always and should only be based on 24-hour readings. The second thing uh, is that it should be based on certain metrics that we found in research to have uh, the uh, potency to be compared to other people. What is that? The standard deviation of normal B intervals, SDNN. This is the gold standard for cardiac outcomes. I've said this on other podcasts. Like if you were to ask like any type of cardiologist who does biometric outcome comparisons and ask them what SDNN was from like a Holter monitor of 24 hour readings or 48 hour readings, they'd absolutely know what you're talking about. In the literature, we can compare cardiac outcomes. Why would we be comparing that? Really, we'd only be comparing that number, that 24-hour reading to others, again, SDNN, if we were looking to assess the potential risk that the person had for future cardiac events, especially if they've already had cardiac events. So what cardiac event am I talking about? Most particularly, myocardial infarction or MI. 
myocardial infarction is another word for a heart attack. So if someone has had a heart attack before, they'll actually periodically need to wear a Holter monitor, which is a wearable kind of go with you everywhere EKG that they wear for 24 to 48 hours to assess heart rhythm. And then they'll assess HRV. And one metric that they put out there is SDNN. Now, we actually know that in the future, or maybe we're growing to know and growing to learn that SDNN might be able to be used by the normative population or most people. But for the most part, it's now used as, again, a gold standard for cardiac outcomes from at least a minimum of 24-hour measurement. What we know is that if we see somebody with an SDNN over the course of 24 hours that's less than 50 milliseconds, then they are at a higher risk and they're at a compromised risk for, uh, for another myocardial infarction, for another heart attack. We know that those who have above 100 milliseconds are actually considered to be in a much better p position to where they will not have um, the highest risk for myocardial infarction in the future or heart attack in the future. It doesn't mean that they won't. It just means that we can predict with a pretty fair amount of certainty that their risk is, again, substantially lower, which is kind of me talking around it, but it means, again, a lot lower risk risk. 100 milliseconds on SDNN is not the same as your 100 milliseconds that you would get on your Aura Ring. That's an RMSSD value. General rule of thumb is that we can predict RMSSD is pretty close to about half of people's SDNN. It's not, that's a general rule of thumb. For me, it's not, it's not the same. For me, my SDNN and RMSSD are fairly close. I'm not going to get into all of that right now because there's a lot to explain around that one, but it just goes to say that there are certain situations where we can compare normatively. Cardiac outcomes after someone has had a heart attack to give us a good, better prediction of whether or not they're going to have heart attacks in the future. That's really it. Now, I have a feeling that at some point we're going to discover maybe some metrics of HRV, which really do require a normative comparison. And I'm really excited for that research in the future, but as it stands, and I do this all the time, but right now I'm recording this on January 20th, 2021, sorry, January, I'm way off, December 20th, 2021. And there are no research studies right now in blue ribbon peer reviewed journal uh, 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 journals that say that there is any need right now for a normative comparison on biometrics, especially in regards to mental health, nervous system resiliency, stress adaptation. There's just nothing out there. So again, why, why are we not comparing HRV normatively? Well, that's because there are just way too many variables that affect HRV scores, that affect, that affect HRV outcomes. What am I talking about? One is genetic propensity. There are a lot of people that are in very, very poor health, but have a genetic propensity towards a high variability in heart rate or the time between heartbeats, HRV. Now, again, for the most part, the general rule of thumb is that when people are quote unquote healthier, normally HRV is higher. There can be a limit to that, right? So I've seen plenty of Olympic athletes who have a really poor HRV due to overtraining, overreaching, and burnt out nervous systems, burnt out adrenals, cortisol dysregulation, hormone dysregulation, and so forth. But a general rule of thumb is that the more healthy the individual is, more adaptive they are, the higher HRV. However, genetics plays a huge role into this. 
I don't know a lot about my dad's or mom's HRV. Uh, it's just not something that I've talked a lot to them about. Uh, I don't even know if they take it. Mom and dad, if you're watching, listening, let me know. But I know uh, I would suspect that there is a possibility that they have a high HRV because I naturally have a high HRV. Now I've done a lot of work to increase my HRV. My thermostat has changed substantially, but I had a hard, I had a high starting place. I'm also really tall and we know that tall people, I'm six foot five. I know that tall people from the literature have higher HRV typically as a baseline. Weight plays a role. Gender plays a role. There are all these other variables that play a factor in a role that doesn't allow for easy normative comparison or provide a reason. Now, again, that could change in the future. I think it's going to change in some way, at least some metrics of HRV. I don't know if it'll be RMSSD. I don't know if it'll be some of the frequency domains. I don't know. But again, there's nothing that indicates that we should be doing that because there's too many variables at play here. Whereas when we look at lipids, when we look at uh, BMI, blood pressure, other biomarkers um, and other biometrics, there are reasons from literature. Again, this is how we get it, right? We get it from science. There are reasons from scientific literature that we should be doing that. Again, will that come down the pike for us in the HRV world and the stress resiliency world? Probably. Uh, it's just a matter of time. It's just not here now. So again, I love to correct myself when we get to that place. It's just not here now. There's also evidence that there's not a there's a lack or a need for comparing normatively for other variables of health, right? So one would be like how much weight you lift, right? So we know that as people develop and gain strength, that mortality and morbidity decreases. So your chance of dying, especially from health related issues, the stronger you are, the more essentially too that you can lift, the better. But why are we not comparing six foot five, you know, Jay, I'm trying to get my muscle into the, uh, <laughs> into the YouTube video. Why are we not comparing me to, you know, the 5'11 guy who is, you know, lifting half my weight or doing whatever? I don't, I don't know. Like, you know, there's, there are ways that we are kind of comparing from like, let's say a competitive power lifting or, you know, weightlifting kind of meat. Uh, but from a health outcomes perspective, we're not. Body fat percentage is another one. So you would kind of expect on some levels that the people with lower body fat would be quote unquote healthier and in ways they are, but they also, you know, might not be in other ways. So it's these different biometrics, these different biomarkers, they have their place for normative comparison, but we have to listen to the science. We have to listen to the research on what it's telling us. So again, I want to kind of finish off this question. Again, great question, Sally. As of now, no evidence for normative comparison. So what should we do? We should compare to our self baseline. So any metric that you're pulling, especially when you're using Hanu, when you're all immersed into our system, any metric that we're pulling, any data that we're pulling should always be a baseline comparison to yourself. Now there's are many, <coughs> excuse me, many ways of doing this. And uh, I don't have the ability in time, I have the ability, I would think, but I don't have the time right now to get into everything. But there are reasons uh, and ways that we should be comparing to the self, you know, from an exercise recovery perspective, from a stress resiliency perspective, from really providing that proxy or information into overall nervous system functioning. There are reasons to do that. Uh, again, I'm not going to go into all of those. There's previous podcasts as to, you know, how to compare normatively. And the next question, I'm going to talk a little bit about how to compare. It's not, sorry, excuse me, scratch that. How to compare to the self. Uh, and the next question, I'm also going to talk about how to compare to the self as well. So again, Sally, thanks. Great question. All right. Third, final question. 
is from, and this came from Instagram as well. So I don't have the name, but I do have the Instagram account. Flow2 Plus, F-L-O-2 Plus. So Flow2 Plus, can you explain the difference between time domain and frequency domain measurements? And then how do we use these measurements? And I think this is a great question because it typically is one of the more confusing ones. Like frequency domain tends to be really confusing. The time domain is kind of more easy to understand, but there's actually a lot of time domain indices that people aren't aware of. Most people only get one, like from this guy right here, like their aura ring or, you know, their whoop or their Garmin. As you can see, I've got a lot of stuff. I want to have my polar on earlier. I'm just collecting data all the time. A little bit of a data nerd, as I should be. I own a health tech company. I probably should be a little bit of a data nerd. Data nerd. Uh, also, scientists and researchers, what I do. Um, so anyway, time domain versus frequency domain. So most people are probably a little bit more familiar with time domain indices. So I mentioned earlier, SDNN, standard deviation of normal B intervals. The SDNN is, again, the gold standard, but it's not utilized as commonly in biometric wearables, like in Aura or in Whoop, uh, in, in other means of collecting data. But there's a lot of relevance to that data point, and I think that we're going to discover more of it. Uh, Marco Altini, who works you know, with us as a primary data scientist, is, uh, a, uh, is uncovering kind of more of utilization and collection of SDNN. So check out his work. Marco's awesome. The next thing would be uh, uh, RMSSD is a value. That's probably the gold standard for short term, uh, which is you know, two to five minutes of reading, which is much shorter than 24 hours. Um, but we can take SDNN and shorter than that. But that's kind of like the gold standard. Well, the great thing about RMSSD is it gives us a true value of vagal modulation. And what I mean by that is that it removes the component or tries to remove the component that slow paced breathing can have on changes in that score and changes in HRV. So if you were to uh, take a five minute reading and uh, when you're breathing normally at a normal respiratory rate, and then you take a five minute reading, breathing at a slow breathing rate, your RMSSD will change, but not significantly compared to the changes that you would see in SDNN. SDNN, you'd see significant changes in slow paced breathing. And the reason being is because it does not factor that variable in, uh, or so I should say factor it out, whereas RMSSD does. Uh, I should back up to and say time domain indices are actually looking at the changes in time between each adjacent heartbeat. So RMSSD is the root mean square of successive differences, which is a mouthful. Basically, it's a, uh, a mathematical equation that transforms the raw interbeat interval data uh, into uh, looking at kind of like the root mean of them. And the reason, again, we do that is to kind of provide, yes, an average, but also, and it's in terms of milliseconds, but it's also a means to kind of factor factor out the variable of breathing and that impact that it can have. Other commonly utilized ones, uh, metrics for time domain are NN50 and PNN50. So NN50 is the number of normal B intervals that are greater than 50 milliseconds. And PNN50 is the percentage, percentage of normal B intervals greater than 50 milliseconds. Why is that important? Well, actually, we have pretty good research that when we have a greater variability in the time um, domain between interbeat intervals of heart rate that are more than 50 milliseconds, then that's indicative of better vagal control you know, or more engagement of the parasympathetic nervous system at any given moment. So we want to see 
kind of, again, as mo the more and more we practice slow paced breathing, the more and more we engage in HRV biofeedback, that we enhance that score, that PNN 50, which again, if you're engaging in slow paced breathing, you will see that score tend to modulate pretty heavily. Uh, the next thing would be comparing time domain indices to frequency domain indices, whereas time is a little bit more straightforward, frequency tends to be a little bit more complex. So what is frequency domain? Well, frequency domains are analogous to the idea of shining all of the raw data through a prism, which is essentially how an EEG works. So an EEG, which is assessing brainwave activity, if you were to look at a raw output of EEG, excuse me, EEG, what you would see is a bunch of just squiggly lines all together and it looks just really you know, disconjointed and you're like, I don't know what I'm looking at. However, if we filter them or we transform that data, we can get the component values, right? So we can look at beta wave, alpha wave, theta wave, delta wave functioning, the percentage, the power that's in that domain. This is what we do when we run an, an EEG or this is also what we do when we do like a brain map. Um, so a quantitative EEG uh, is a means of kind of looking at how much power is in that domain. So basically like which one is rising above or which one is underperforming. So that's kind of, again, a, a, that's a little bit bastardized. Uh, however, that's the easiest way to put it. It's like basically shining the raw data through a prism and looking at the component values. And we know from an EEG, we know what it means to have high power in beta, to have high power in alpha, theta, delta, SMR, and so on. So we can do the same thing with heart rate data to look at cardiorespiratory fitness and HRV values. Uh, we just term them a little bit differently. So we send the raw data through what's called an FFT or an AT, so a fast Fourier transformation. And that data will again provide us with the component values. And then from research, we know what each of those component values means or kind of what does power mean within each of those domains. So what we actually have is uh, we have uh, four domains and frequency domains that are really popularized or really researched. ULF, VLF, LF, and HF. So ULF is ultra low frequency. There's a, not a ton of consensus about what that data means, and it can only be collected over a 24-hour period. So not a lot of people use it. It's just a confusing one. Again, this is the world of science, right? So we're going to figure out more of what it means. Um, it just may take a little bit of time. So I'm going to leave that one be. Now, VLF's a really interesting one, the very low frequency band. What we know about the very low frequency band is that it's a great marker um, of, of sympathetic activity, but mostly alpha sympathetic activity that's kind of found uh, within the alpha receptors of the heart. So we know that when someone is engaged in a sympathetic response and these alpha receptors are activated, that the power domain in VLF goes way up. So if someone's stressed and they're experiencing that alpha sympathetic activity, VLF power will go up significantly. So if you were to look at a graph of an FFT or a fast Fourier transformation, a frequency prism, then what we actually will see is a lot of spiking in that VLF when someone's experiencing a high level of alpha sympathetic activity. Now, LF is probably the most confusing simply because researchers have gone back and forth as to what it actually tells us. 
and what it actually means. So LF, which is again, the low frequency band, LF is one of those that just tends to be confusing. And the reason it's so confusing is because we've gone back and forth between what researchers believe it tells us and what it doesn't. At first we thought, oh, this is really sympathetically dominant. Like when LF is increased, we know that someone is experiencing a high level of sympathetic activity, a high level of sympathetic output. It's actually not the case. We actually now think quite the opposite of LF, that it's actually more parasympathetically dominant, as is HF. I'll tell you why HF we pretty much know is sympathetic, uh, sorry, is parasympathetically dominant. Uh, but LF, we actually think is a little bit more driven by parasympathetic activity, but also too um, is highly indicative of sympathetic activity as well. Like I mentioned earlier, LF or low frequency is really the band of the baroreflex. It's really the band of baroreflex sensitivity as well. And so what we know, um, and I'll get into this more and kind of like how do we utilize um, LF, but we know that LF, uh, especially when someone's engaged in slow paced breathing, almost all the power is going to be pulled into low frequency, especially hanging around that 0.1 hertz or what we call kind of like the meditator's peak, kind of the resonant breath rate. Uh, the Heart Math Institute calls it the coherent rate. Uh, that's kind of, again, around that 0.1 hertz. And then HF high frequency is probably one of the most researched bands in regards to parasympathetic activity. We know that if we uh, block the vagus nerve, if we provide full blockade of the vagus nerve, then basically there will be zero oscillations that happen in the high frequency domain, which means that it is really governed by the parasympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system. I'm going to again talk about use here in a minute. The most controversial ratio, or I guess we would say data point, uh, is the LFHF ratio. And the LF-HF ratio is supposed to be kind of like a indicator of autonomic balance, but really that's been debunked. We don't have great research for that like whatsoever. We don't really have great information to say that the LF-HF ratio is indeed an indicator of autonomic balance. Even the word autonomic balance is a, a bit of a misnomer. It's a bit of uh, a myth too, that that's kind of what we're after. We're not after that. We're not after a balance. This is not a seesaw. We're after our ability to to control and modulate the nervous system at will. If you want to call that balance, sure, but it's really kind of not technically correct. So what's the uses? Like how do we use time domain indices? How do we use frequency domain indices? Well, the first thing to remember is that in regards to time domain indices, this is the most rigor rigorously studied. So we have the most evidence for use in time domain indices, especially short-term readings utilizing the RMSSD value. That is why Whoop uses it, Aura uses it, Hana uses it, everybody uses RMSSD because it is the most accurate uh, ability or benchmark to determine changes in vagal modulation and vagal functioning. Uh, and functioning might be a little bit of an overstep, but there is means of determining kind of a vagal output and parasympathetic output by looking at RMSSD. So I like the use, and I would say I love the use of RMSSD simply from the perspective that RMSSD provides us with kind of most scientifically rigored uh, type of output because we know what it's providing us. Now, frequency domain output has been studied pretty heavily. However, like these are more 
um, estimations of output uh, from the different branches in the nervous system, but they're pretty excellent estimations of our vagal response. The first one would be that the HF or high frequency band is indeed an excellent estimation of vagal response. So we love to look at what does that look like pre and post baseline of training in the from morning to morning, if you take like a morning reading, is there change? If there's significant change in a downward direction, then we actually know that again, there's more vagal blockage. Our vagus is being inhibited. Our parasympathetic nervous system is being inhibited. Well, why is that? Is that because we're stressed? Are we overreaching? Like, is there bodily damage? Like there are all plenty of other of reasons for it. The biggest one we see is a heightened level of stress response. We also know that when we utilize the frequency domains, this is great feedback for assessing barrel reflex sensitivity. So again, we think about the LF band, especially when we're engaging in slow paced breathing and SPV breathing. The barrel reflex again falls into this low frequency band. So what you'll see, and this is kind of me repeating myself, but I just wanted to kind of make mention when we're engaging in slow paced breathing, we're going to see that really big spike in power towards the one our 0.1 Hertz uh, range. And when we see that big spike in power, we call it the meditator's peak. That normally happens when people are breathing below eight and a half breaths per minute, but most substantially when they're breathing at their resonant rate, which is between four and a half breaths per minute all the way to six and a half breaths per minute. Knowing your bright, uh, your re resonant frequency rate is going to be of vast importance. And at Hanu, you're going to find it out. You're going to learn how to do this and you're going to get it and you're going to be able to train with that. So I'll, I'll, I'll keep you waiting there. We know that this happens again, actually via the vagus. So we have great evidence that the vagus is in control of that LF band power when we're breathing at slow rates. What we also want to look for is we want to look for an enhancement in low frequency power when we're engaging in RF or resonant frequency breathing and slow pace breathing or in any type of HRV biofeedback. The stronger or more we practice, the more we're going to see power in that band. So you may start off with seeing, let's say, seeing 5,000 um, milliseconds squared of power when in that 0.1 Hertz range, when you're engaging in HRV biofeedback, but maybe months go by and now you're seeing 7,000 you know, milliseconds squared of power, 10,000 milliseconds squared of power. And next thing you know, you're at 25,000 milliseconds squared of power. That's kind of what you're looking for. Enhancements or changes in the power uh, or sensitivity of the barrel reflex within that low frequency range. The next thing we're looking for is we're looking for enhancements in HF or high frequency power during resting baselines before and after slow pace breathing, HRV biofeedback, or like morning to morning, like almost like readiness scores or stress resiliency score. We don't look at high frequency during slow pace breathing. And that's again, because all the power is going to shift or most of the power, I should say, not all, most of the power is going to shift into the low frequency band. And we don't have good evidence for assessing changes in high frequency power when engaged in slow paced breathing. Time domain versus frequency domain. It's not really a versus, it's a and. Uh, I like both of them. Again, you're going to find the most scientific evidence behind the use of time domain indices, but you will find indeed the utilization and need for frequency band assessment. And the reason again for this one is because when we look at time domain indices, we might be missing kind of the whole picture here. We want to don't we don't want to look at the raw data EEG. We want to look at the component values, which would be the prism that we shine the EKG or PPG for most people uh, data through and then again see those component rhythm values. 
Great question. Uh, that was an awesome one from, again, Flow2 Plus. If, if I read your question out in here, please make sure that you reach out to us. So go podcast at hanuhealth.com with your name, your address. We'll send you over the Hanu gear package and you guys will be good to go. If you want your opportunity to to you know feature your question on here to get you a Hanu Health gear package, please make sure you submit to us. Again, Instagram, YouTube, uh, podcast at hanuhealth.com. It's an email. Like We want to hear from you. These questions are awesome. Thank you for the three of you who submitted. Last thing, again, I want to wrap this up. Everybody, if you're not on the wait list yet, like you need to get on there. Like the insaneness of stuff that's coming out in regards to content, but then also to what we're providing as a product service from Hanu Health, you're going to be the first to hear about it, the first to get discounts on it, and the first to get your hands on what we're doing if you get on the wait list. So that's hanuhealth.com slash waitlist. The other way to follow us is on Instagram. It's on YouTube. If you're watching us here, thank you. Like, subscribe, all that good stuff. Like we want you to, to, to be alerted to all of our videos and then follow us at Hanu Health kind of on all of our platforms. Again, Facebook, Instagram, you know it. Also follow Patrick at Oxygen Advantage at Buteco Clinic. You can follow my personal Instagram at Dr. J Wiles. We'd, we'd really be appreciative for it. And the last thing that you can do to help us, again, if you want to wear, win one of these gear packages, like we're trying to give this to everybody. Like we want everybody in the world to have Hanu gear and to, and to have Hanu as a part of their life. Give us a five-star review on the Apple podcast platform. So go on there, write us a five-star review. If I read your five-star review on air with Patrick during our Q&A, we're going to send you that gear package. You're going to get it. You're going to love it. So please make sure that you do that. Everybody, I hope that this was helpful, this was informative, that you can take this information and use it and live your best life, just engaging in those slow-paced breathing patterns, enhancing stress resiliency, improving your heart rate variability, and your means to relate to other people. Like again, if we can change your means of interacting with yourself and others to make you less emotionally explosive or reactive to make you more forgiving of yourself, provide grace for yourself and others to really connect with others. Like that's our goal. That's what we want for you. That's what we want for us here at Hanu as well. So thank you so much for listening. Every Friday, the podcast comes out. All the stuff's going to get uploaded to YouTube. We're going to have way more content on YouTube as well. That's going to be like YouTube exclusive. A lot of great education stuff, a lot of information, cracking down and reading of all this great research that we provided to you today, hopefully. Uh, it's all coming. So again, thank you all again for joining us. We love you all and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Hanu Health Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. This podcast would not happen without listeners and supporters like you. And the best way to support us and the show is to head on over to iTunes and provide us with a five-star review. This helps us reach others and spread the good word of breathing and stress resiliency. If we read your five-star review on air, please reach out to podcast at hanuhealth.com with your name and mailing address, and we will send you some sweet Hanu gear. Until next time, breathe better and stress less.